Now, if you would uh, please open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we will be looking at chapter 12, the entirety of chapter 12. As we see the furious grace of God in operation in the life of David. And yes, I said furious, because it is that, it's more than that, but at least it is that. Now, hear the word of the Lord as we read from 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also hath put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child of Uriah's wife, uh, Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. 
And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was alive, yet alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But David saw that his servants were whispering together. David understood that the child was dead, and David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then he went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He, that is David, said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in to her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought among Rabah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of your people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do ask now that in your tender mercy and in your kindness you would speak to us and you would address us from this your word. And we pray that you would give the one who preaches and the one who hears help. Lord, we know that if the word is preached not in the power of the Spirit, it will not accomplish your purposes. So we pray that the power of your Holy Spirit will attend the preaching of your word for your own honor and glory. And we pray that it will find its way into the hearts of people and produce fruit in their lives, fruits of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Lord, as we consider this text before us, we pray that uh, you would be honored, lifted up, and praised because we have heard you speak to us today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what a story, huh? 
What a story. Several stories. David thought he got away with it. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever said, Phew. got away with that one, dodged that bullet, that one's not going to catch up with me. And yet, little did David know that nine months after he had committed this great sin against God first, and then Bathsheba second, Uriah the Hittite third, and all the people that David ruled over, Little did he know that God was about to deal with it. He thought he got away with it, that no one would notice, that no one had seen, that no one would report it. He had covered his tracks, but he failed. The messengers in chapter 11 that David had sent to Joab to, to plan and execute all of these evil things has stopped. Now God has sent him a messenger. Nathan was a prophet, and God has sent him now to hold the king accountable. One of the things you need to understand about prophets in the Old Testament is they did speak forth God's word. They had visions and oracles they received from God. But in this respect, Nathan serves as a covenant prosecutor. That is, he is bringing the obligations of the covenant David had with God to bear upon his situation. Nathan was there to confront David. And so Nathan decided to do it, but one of the things that stands out to me in this passage that I'm a little bit overwhelmed about is that he sent, obviously he has access to David's presence. He has a right to speak, and in David's growing cynicism, he has a responsibility to listen. A voice from outside is about to speak into the situation in a very clear and simple way. And the most marvelous thing I see from this passage is the wisdom of Nathan. Think about it. Nathan has the authority of God. He's been sent with God. He has a word from God, but he doesn't confront David with his sin. He tells him a story. What he's trying to do, now you got to understand, David's the most powerful man in the known world at this time. David is beloved by all of the people. David is the hero of all heroes. And so Nathan had to understand here how to speak truth to power. How do you do that? How do you address people who are over you or stand in authority over you who have done something terribly wrong? What does Nathan do? I guess under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells him a story. And the story is one of the most simple stories you would ever hear in life. You know, the story is about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man in this parable, as it were, is not really that very interesting, is he? It tells us that he's incredibly wealthy, that he had no needs at all. Why in the world would he take away this poor man's only thing he treasured in the world? Why would he do that? That is so ridiculous, so insensitive, so heartless, so cynical as to abuse the man this way. Why would he do that? It's awful. 
And so the poor man then comes to center stage and he, rem he remains the focus of this poor, of this uh, parable. The narrative takes great time to sketch the poor man clearly and vividly. This one lamb for this man is like a treasured daughter, which he nurtured, and to which he gave food and drink from his own cup. This precious lamb in the man's house was obviously treasured and safe. The rich man just needed another lunch. He didn't want to kill any of his own sheep, even though he had plenty of flocks and herds. The rich man is quite ingenious. He took the lamb daughter of the poor man, and the word calls attention to itself. He took. That is what David has been doing. If you'll look back in the last chapter, he takes, he takes, he takes. Samuel warned the people of God when they wanted a king, you better rethink this, people, because once you get a king, he's going to take and take and take. He will take everything from you. He will take your wife. He will take your children for his army. He will take your food. He will tax you. He will take and take and take. And so he uses this word. He took. It is the word reporting David's actions. David took Bathsheba, chapter 11, verse 4. The rich man took the lamb and ate it for dinner. He took what was not his, the treasure of his life, as if it were his own to take. Nathan's story is incredibly subtle in its wording. It obviously makes an economic contrast between the great and the little with words like lie and took. However, there's also an accusation of rape, as it were. The rich man raped the daughter like treasure of the poor man. This is a tale of cynicism, selfishness, destruction, and greed. The parable does its powerful work. David's response is self-incriminating and self-indicting. You know, one of the, if you've ever had to confront anybody or you practice regular confrontation, I hope you don't like it. If you enjoy it, there's something wrong with you. If you won't do it, there's something wrong with you. But notice this about David and about Nathan the prophet. He understands the dynamics of confrontation. He must have done it many other times. But he understands that if you go straight for the juggler and say, David, we know what you did. We know who you did it with. We know when you did it. We know how you tried to cover it up. You are done. You are toast. No. He does it through a story that reflects back exactly what David has done and allows David to go on and indict himself in his response. He cries out. I want that man, I want him dead. Kind of like a mafia story. Uh, he wants him dead. David's response is immediate, indignant, and on target. He's appalled by the crassness and cynicism of this rich man who acts in ways that are economically and sexually destructive. The rich man receives his harsh royal indictment. The king, accustomed to conducting judicial procedure, indicts and sentences his own life. Reparation must be made. 
And so the narrative continues to struggle with how truth shall speak to power. The prophet addresses the king. Such speech is dangerous business, especially to address a king who is now so cynical and so uh, sluggish and desperate, but it has the right strategy for it permits the king to draw his own unavoidable conclusion and consequence. David could rightly discern the parable. What he does not discern is how the parable touches his own situation. And in verse 7, there's a change of strategy, a change of rhetoric. Now the address of Nathan is bold and direct. There's no more artistic finesse. Now there's a direct prophetic speech. It is a high-risk moment, yet the word must be uttered even to this David who most likely is surrounded by nothing other than yes-men. Prophetic speech is still permitted in Israel, for such speech is uh, is part of Israel's self-discernment. A king must not only tolerate but heed the prophet. The essential interpretation of the self-indicting parable is made in the succinct statement of verse 7, you are the man. You are the man. Now, verses 7b through 12 are a long speech, contain a long speech in the mouth of Yahweh, interrupted only by a second messenger, uh, thus says the Lord. Yahweh begins by reviewing past his past gracious action toward David. Now David in this situation at this moment is in what I would call a very spiritual, dull, almost dead, sluggish condition. And something needs to bring him a wake-up call. And so Yahweh addresses him, and the action is dominated by the verb give in contrast to take. God has been faithful to David and will do so more for David in the future. And uh, the reference to master's house and master's wives refers to David's displacement of Saul, which David accomplished with Yahweh's sanction. From this review, Yahweh precedes the indictment. The indictment indicates that David imagined himself autonomous and not responsive to Yahweh's word. The reference to evil in his eyes looks back at the comment of 1127. The particulars of the indictment are the verbs smile, take, kill. The three commandments David violated are the prohibitions on killing, adultery, and coveting. In this series of verbs, the verb take, the verb of adultery and coveting, is framed by the two verbs of killing. David has violated crucial claims of Torah. He has also violated the gifts of Yahweh and the deep commitment Yahweh has made to him. And so the sentence of the lawsuit in verses 10 through 12 is introduced by a standard therefore and is a massive in its threat, far-reaching in its scope. The sentence ordains a sword over David, David's house and David's family for all time to come. David's Jerusalem establishment shall never be free of conflict, trouble, and destructiveness. The crop does come in. Consequences ensue. 
and we're hearing about them, and they seem so long-lasting and so very severe because what he did was so long-lasting and very severe. David's Jerusalem establishment will never be as beautiful and glorious as he may have dreamed of. This sentence fits the affront. It was by the sword of the Ammonites that David did his killing work. The sword also provides David with the rationale to execute his action. Now a long destiny of a sword-shaped life is promised and played out in the bloody history of David's sons and indeed in the long course of his monarchy until the coming of deathly Babylon in 2 Kings. One might not expect one single act and its covering up to hover so ominously for so long. Such a hovering of danger from Yahweh belongs to the world of prophetic reality. This is the moral seriousness that David has violated and the covenants far extend beyond him or the consequences far extend beyond him and the king is going to face things that are devastating. David has been the neighbor who was better than Saul and thus would receive the throne. David's son Absalom is the neighbor who will rise up out of David's own house and claim the throne and preempt David's wives in a way to absolutely humiliate his father David. David sees Bathsheba secretly. Absalom will seize David's wives publicly for all to see. The royal answering for David's affront will be long and costly. David's response in verse 13 is rather remarkable. I have sinned. I have sinned. We might conclude that David really doesn't have an option here. He's caught red-handed and had to confess, but he in fact did not have to confess. A lesser son. Perhaps his son Solomon would not have confessed, but would have eliminated the prophet instead. The elimination of Nathan could have easily been done but David did not move against Nathan. David's confession comes very late, but at least David has submitted. It reminds me of the interrogation in the Garden of Eden when the Lord comes to the woman and asks her what she has done. She explains what she has done. The serpent deceived me. He gave it to me, and I ate. The minute she said I ate, interrogation over. He does the same thing with Adam where he asks Adam, where are you? What have you done? And Adam says, it was the woman you gave to me. What a, what a, a, a courageous man. Huh? It was the woman you gave to me. She gave it to me, and I ate. The moment he said, I ate, it was over. Now, David's confession is rather brief, isn't it? And we would like to see a little more groveling, would we not? We would like to see him be a little more serious about this, a little more verbose, painting the picture of just how deeply grieved he was that he had so grieved the heart of God. There really isn't much to celebrate about David in this entire narrative. But the narrator wants us to remember two things about the portrayal of David. First, concerning David, it is evident that David still has a considerable degree of moral courage and sensitivity. He's able to face up to his real situation. Second, concerning the gospel, though it is late in the narrative, it is not too late for David's repentance. 
David is a man who is still willing and able to cast himself upon the Lord's mercy. Yahweh is a God who will extend mercy to a person like this, who's done what he's done. But by the end of the narrative, David has abandoned his presumed moral autonomy and resubmitted to the covenantal governance of Israel's faith. David's confession in the Hebrew consists of two words. Two words. David's words correspond in its terseness and directness to the words of Nathan, you are the man. Everything is terse, quick, few words. Very much like Bathsheba, I am pregnant. The entire narrative is caught in these three phases. The first phase of Bathsheba introduces the moral affront. David is indicted. The second from Nathan identifies David and his affront. And in the last, David submits and turns to the only source of comfort and help. These three terse statements by Bathsheba, Nathan, and David may be simple words to order. They are, however, very costly and risky for each speaker in turn. In their utterance, we watch David being dismantled before the massive claim of Israel's Torah. David here reminds me of Isaiah the prophet who goes into the temple where Yahweh is high and lifted up and the cherubim and the seraphim and all the other fiends are there and their wings are flapping and they are crying out before the Lord, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he becomes undone. He's shattered. In other words, he disintegrates before God restores him and reintegrates him. He is literally shattered to the depths of his being by this encounter with God. He's not unscarred. Indeed, David will never be whole and free again, but he can live and he begins anew. There is a cost, but David lives. The narrative is about the high price of receiving life when we are seduced by our own imagined ethical autonomy. The cost is borne out in this royal sordidness. Nathan had assessed the cost of the child. The child will die. The child will die. Isn't it interesting that in the middle of this narrative, after David repents, God delivers a statement through Nathan the prophet telling David his child will die. Now, just stop right there and think for a moment. The son of David had to die as part of the restoration process for David the king. Who is that son of David? Well, here is the child of David and Bathsheba. Ultimately, it's Jesus, the son of David, who dies. That David may receive grace and that you and I may receive grace for our heinous sin. The child dies. Now, David, like any person hearing this news, grieves over it. And he begins to fast and he begins to pray and he begins to look to the Lord. And his servants are so terrified to even tell him that the son had already died because they thought he's so devastated by this. What will he do? Our heads may be gone from our bodies if we tell him. So he sees them in a corner discussing something, recognizes that the child is dead, gets up, cleans up, moves on. 
When asked why, perhaps God would be merciful and spare my son. But the restoration process is in motion because you notice, and this is the first time in the narrative that David and Bathsheba, in particular, her name is said, no longer as wife of Uriah the Hittite, here as Bathsheba. He went into her, she conceived, and they had a child named Solomon, based on the Hebrew word shalom. You've heard of slow-mo? It's shalom, peace, wholeness, goodness, restoration. That's what God told David to name his son. He named him uh, Solomon, which was also Jedidiah, which in Hebrew means one loved of Yahweh. And the Lord loved the child. He lost the child. He received another child. And the second son born to this ill-wrought marriage is legitimately conceived in wedlock. Now Bathsheba is his wife, no longer the wife of Uriah. The birth of the new son is not only the uh, birth recorded to indicate the immediate curse is past. The birth will dominate the entire story to come. The child's name is Solomon, derived from Shalom. He is loved and treasured by Yahweh. Now, the placement of Solomon's birth in the narrative is stunning. Solomon is born so close to the sordidness, still within the echo of the prophetic lawsuit. Nonetheless, life begins again for the family. What amazing grace is demonstrated here. David does not die. He deserves to die. He should be forever banished from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord takes his son and he gives birth to another son as he marries Bathsheba and they become one. And it's the son who will ultimately build the temple, the son who will ultimately usher in the golden moment in the Old Testament where the queen of Sheba visits Solomon's temple to see the glory and grandeur that she had heard of. Israel was always to be a light to the nations. They were always to glorify God. And out of the mess of this sin, God raises the phoenix of grace. Or let's say it better than that. God rebuilds the life of the sinner. Which gives us great hope and mercy to restore us. Some of you may have ventured down the road in some of these activities and you've done things that have sinned right in the face of God himself. And yet, your life is not over. Your life is not done. You are not rendered uh, worthless. You are not placed on the shelf never to do anything again. For example, even Joab, who knows everything, by the way, Joab knows everything about everything about this. And Joab is ready to take the Ammonites. He's ready to take Rabbah. But he consults David and says, get up here, man. I don't want the credit for this. You're the king. You get the credit for this. And David receives glory from that victory, even after all he had done and been confronted with. That is to tell you there's life after failure through repentance and faith. David repented of his sin. In the coming weeks or coming Sundays, we're going to look at how David articulates his repentance in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is 
at least though it's not inspired, the uh, heading of Psalm 51 is the prayer David prayed after being confronted about his sin with Bathsheba. And we're going to look at that and we're going to see how deeply the words I have sinned really entered into the life of this man. But there's always hope. There's always life to be lived after the failure for the people of God. And David's life here is such a beautiful monument to and trophy of God's amazing grace. Here you would think David would be reckoned to the ash heap of history. And yet, he is again the king and he again reigns before Yahweh. However, the coming chapters will literally record the incidents that gutted him. So, there it is with the grace of God. It's furious grace. What do I mean by furious grace? God loved David too much to just kill him and take him out. God in his grace came to him and, as it were, confronted him to receive that's what we don't understand very much about faith and repentance. We think, well, why do we do these confessions in church? Why do we read these confessions about how wicked and sinful we are and how much we need Jesus and his grace? Why do we do that? Why, do, why can't we just assume everything's okay in the house? Why do we have to expose ourselves that way? Because you'll never know how much Jesus loves you until you see your sin and until you see how much Jesus loves you, you don't have the courage to see your sin. And that's exactly what happens to David in this text. So what about you? Anything you're hiding? Anything you're hoping will never be discovered or found out? Anything in your life that you're so ashamed of you hope never comes to the surface publicly? Have you ever dealt with that thing? Have you ever come before the Lord and called it what it is, sin, and dealt with it? Or have you just sloughed it off and now you're walking around in a state of spiritual stupor and death, as it were almost, dullness. There's no heart for Jesus. There's no enthusiasm in your life. Why? Because you can't cover your sin and prosper. Solomon later in Proverbs would write, He who covers his sin shall not prosper. He who uncovers it before the Lord shall obtain mercy and forgiveness. There, Solomon must have been thinking of his father. The cover-up, he uncovered it, God uncovered it, and then blessed his servant. You think about that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter. It is powerful, and it hones in and focuses in on your work in our hearts. And I pray that you give us the moral courage, because we understand you're gracious and good, that we can come to you and open up about this stuff in our lives. We know that you do not punish us for our sins because you have punished Jesus for our sins. But you do discipline us for your sins. You skin us alive. And we experience consequences. But we thank you for your furious grace. 
that will never let us go. Now, Father, as we continue to worship here, may we give his people who have tasted and seen that your goodness and your grace is good. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.